Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. I'm uh, Dr. Robert Sade, uh, Chair of the Cardiothoracic Ethics Forum. Uh, the forum puts together a debate every year for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Uh, and, uh, and picks a topic that is uh, relevant to cardiothoracic surgical practice uh, that is also very controversial. Uh, this year, the, uh, the forum chose the topic of the failing heart of a child and who is on ECMO, and the decision has to be made whether to remove ECMO and allow the child to die or to uh, place the child on a ventricular assist device after removing ECMO and, uh, and put, put the child on the transplant list. There's a specific vignette that we've put together uh, to focus the discussion uh, between two debaters. Uh, and I'm going to present the, uh, the, talk, uh, the, uh, uh, the vignette and then ask uh, each of the speakers uh, Jessica Turnbull on my right and Minu Kavarana on my left uh, to introduce themselves, where they're from, etc. So the case is this. Uh, Angela Downing is eight years old. Uh, she has Down syndrome. Uh, and when she was born, she had a complete AV canal, uh, which was repaired when she was five months old. Uh, after that procedure, she was left with moderate atrioventricular valve insufficiency and moderately depressed left ventricular function. Uh, she did uh, satisfactorily until she was four years old when she had easy fatigability and nighttime snoring for which a sleep study was done and she was found to, uh, to have obstructive sleep apnea. CPAP was prescribed, uh, but she dislikes the CPAP and she often removes the mask during the night. Echocardiography when she was four years old showed uh, pulmonary hypertension for which she takes sildenafil every day. Uh, Angela's AV valve insufficiency is now severe. Her left ventricular function has remained moderately depressed. Uh, her pulmonary vascular resistance is four wood units. Uh, her mitral valve uh, undergoes repair at this time, but uh, because of residual mitral valve insufficiency uh, and poor left, left ventricular function, there's difficulty weaning her from cardiopulmonary bypass, so she's placed back on bypass, and her mitral valve is replaced. Uh, <clears throat> after valve replacement, uh, she still cannot be weaned from bypass uh, because of poor left ventricular function. So she's placed on veno-arterial uh, ECMO by way of chest cannulation, and the chest is left open. Over the next seven days, Angela fails to wean from ECMO support, and her course is complicated by re-exploration for bleeding and uh, multiple small uh, emboli uh, because of difficulty achieving adequate heparinization. Uh, she has emboli to several fingers and toes. Her chest remains open. Her parents want everything done. 
Uh, and the surgical team believes that the possibility of uh, weaning from ECMO uh, is now approaching zero. Uh, the only reasonable options seem to be withdrawal from ECMO uh, or placement on a ventricular, receptive, uh, uh, ventricular assist device uh, as a bridge to transplant. The question is, should the patient be placed on the transplant list? Uh, Dr. Kavarana believes the patient should be placed on the transplant list. Dr. Turnbull believes the patient should simply be removed from ECMO and placed on palliative care. Uh, so I'd like to start the, uh, uh, the interaction with our uh, two guests and, uh, and ask uh, Minu, tell us in a nutshell why you think the operation uh, f uh, for VAD and transplant is the better option for Angela. So the reason I think it is the better option is because it's what I would consider the standard of care for an eight-year-old child who is currently on ECMO after an open-heart operation. In my mind, there is no distinction based on the fact that the child has trisomy 21 or not. There is a fair amount of data now. In fact, we have two presentations that will be discussed today uh, on large multicenter studies looking at patients with Down syndrome in comparison with those that don't have Down syndrome. And we've found consistently that Down syndrome children actually have a better survival, uh, lower morbidity for most biventricular repairs other than single ventricle physiology. Okay, thank you. And uh, Jesse, uh, tell us in a nutshell mm -hmm. uh, why you think that Angela should be removed from ECMO without further support. Um, I think this is a awful case. And I think we're seeing more and more kids in our cardiac ICUs that have premorbidity upon premorbidity when they come to the spot where they have a cardiac repair that they're unable to separate from bypass and require support with ECMO. I think, <clears throat> unfortunately, in Angela's case, um, it's not the trisomy 21 that makes me think that she shouldn't be a candidate for a heart transplant. It's her course up until this point. The fact that she has a history of noncompliance with her CPAP makes me extremely concerned about her family's ability to facilitate the compliance that will be necessary to sustain a VAD and then a transplanted heart. And I also believe she's already shown us that she has risk for multi-system disease that will make it difficult for her to, uh, to um, adequately get through a transplant course. The thromboemboli to her fingers and toes suggests that she's likely had thrombo thromboemboli to other uh, important organs, which will be necessary for uh, which will have to which will have to work well uh, for her path forward. So unfortunately, because donated pediatric hearts are such a limited resource, uh, I think that um, Angela's case has made her too complicated to receive that resource. Okay, and uh, following up on, on that comment, I'd like to uh, ask you know, uh, that Angela obviously is in very bad condition uh, at, at the moment. How can you justify using a scarce replacement heart when so many other children with a much better long-term outlook uh, are on the transplant list. About 20 to 25% of children who are on the transplant list don't receive a heart and die on the transplant list uh, before a heart becomes available. One of them is going to die 
one of these otherwise healthy children is going to die if Angela gets one of these rare hearts. How do you justify giving Angela the heart rather than one of those other children? I'd like to remind uh, everyone that the children that we operate on and place on mechanical support and list for heart transplantation, majority of them are not healthy. They're very, very sick. That's why they're getting a mechanical support device. Many of them are in what we would call Inamax 1, Inamax 2, Inamax 3 categories. They're very sick. Multi-organ failure many times, inability to separate from bypass many times. And that's the kind of patient that we take care of majority of the time. And that's the reason why a ventricular assist device is so effective in reversing all that end organ dysfunction and bridging a patient safely to heart transplantation. So Angela preventing another child from receiving a heart transplant is the same as any other child getting listed and getting a heart transplant. It is a limited resource, but we have to be very clear as to who we're going to offer it to and who we're not going to offer it to. And I think uh, that's where this debate really comes in. Okay. Uh, and a question for, uh, for Jesse. Um, suppose that Angela has the same history, but, she, uh, but has no genetic abnormality. She's a very bright, energetic uh, eight-year-old uh, who's doing very well in school. Would you then put in the VAD and put her on the transplant list? Uh, and why or why not would you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I absolutely would. I think um, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old who does well in school um, is able to show us that they are able to comply with things necessary to bring about their own greater good. And of course, that comes with the guidance of parents, of course. Um, and I also believe that even if we had an eight-year-old with trisomy 21 who was in school doing well, energetic, I think that changes the story to the point where she should get a heart transplant too. Um, Sarah Jansen was a, um, was a disability rights activist in the 1990s who had trisomy 21 and uh, lobbied under the American, Americans with Disability Act to have a heart-lung transplant when she needed one. She was 35 years old when she got her heart transplant. She had the history, though, that she had been living on her own since she was 20 years old, and she was working as a disability rights activist. And so I think that shows a level of working within external supports where you can have a great amount of success as an individual regardless of your genetic uh, your genetic history. Um, and so for Angela, it is very much my concern that the um, history of being non-compliant with previous medical interventions, even with the support of her parents, even with the support of the medical team, would make it so that it wouldn't be a fair utilization of the limited resource of a transplanted heart. Okay. Manu, what do you think about that? That sounds pretty persuasive. I mean, she would do it if it weren't Angela with all of her potentially potential and, and real non-compliance uh, issues. I think uh, Jessica's just really made my argument very easy. I think we can't discriminate based on what we think is normal. Uh, and uh, I think, in my mind, uh, the only t reason why I would not offer Angela or any other eight-year-old mechanical support 
while a child is being supported just seven days after her open heart operation on ECMO would be catastrophic brain damage, uh, irreversible bowel injury and bowel ischemia, and refractory sepsis, which cannot be controlled. So those are the three conditions where I have, and I would definitely recommend not proceeding with aggressive therapy. But other than that, we see miraculous results every day all around the world with kids in Angela's condition. So. Yeah, how do you respond to the non-compliance issue? I mean, non-compliance non is something that, uh, that, can, that should keep people off of the uh, transplant list if they're not gonna take their medications, et cetera. Now, she's only eight years old, but she won't put up with her CPAP. She won't keep her mask on because she doesn't like it. Does that weigh at all in your calculus? I think if that were the case, then we probably wouldn't do any pediatric heart transplantation because children uh, at that age and younger or even older oftentimes are completely dependent on their caregivers. So I think if the caregivers were, uh, we couldn't find responsible caregivers, then I would definitely give it serious thought. Now in Angela's case, she has a mother and father that have proven to be excellent caregivers. So I believe that she would be no uh, different than any other eight-year-old child. How do you respond to that? I feel horrible for what we ask the parents of our pediatric patients to go through. For our medically complex kids, including kids like Angela, we ask our parents to become home nurses, home respiratory therapists, home case managers. We ask them to take on such responsibility in really perpetuating the care that we start with their child. I am sure that Angela's parents are deeply loving and deeply responsible individuals, but they can't keep their eight-year-old CPAP mask on. If, in, if any person, eight-year-old or 80 years old, doesn't want to wear their CPAP, the CPAP goes in a closet, it collects dust, it affects that person for their obstructive sleep apnea that's going untreated. If a person with a transplanted heart doesn't comply with medical care, that affects that person, but then that also affects the person who died on the waiting list waiting for a heart. And so her lack of compliance with a relative infinite resource, I think has serious implications regarding how much risk we're willing to take with giving her such a limited resource. Okay, I'd like to thank uh, both of the speakers. Uh, the oral debate is going to take place uh, at the 2017 meeting of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Uh, for those of you who don't make it to that debate, uh, the uh, manuscripts from these two debates will be, uh, or from this debate, will be published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery sometime later this year uh, as a permanent record of this discussion. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.